How do you sleep well at night knowing that there's volatility out there, especially in down markets like 2022, is you just got to look at these are mass market ready technologies. Quantum computing is not, um, not even necessarily going to, you know, we haven't really explored at all, which is just kind of a, a, a pretty good sized market today that, that could be a 20x increase in the next decade is the space economy. The classic quote is, you know, we, we tend to overestimate our progress in the short term. Things don't happen as quickly as we want them to in a year or two, but then we underestimate our progress in the long term. I mean, governments better better get it together quick. Like the role of government has never been more important of protecting interests of, of any country. My favorite part of investing is the learning process. I love starting at ground zero, knowing nothing, complete full to spending one, two, three weeks obsessing over one particular topic to try and master it and learn everything I possibly can, which is why innovation is one of my favorite sectors to learn about. Because if you're a macro investor, it can be really easy to become bearish and negative about what's going on, especially with a looming recession. But when you turn your gaze to innovation, suddenly everything's exciting. The future looks bright. You get to see what all these absolutely brilliant people who are so much smarter than me are working on, whether it's an AI and quantum computing or biotechnology, or even this space travel and space technologies that we've seen, which is why today's guest was so fun to talk to. And that's Simon Erickson, who has taken time to talk to some of these MIT scientists who are working in these different sectors. He's gone and seen the quantum computers, and it was great to hear his opinions on a lot of these technologies. He really helped me build a better framework for my understanding of quantum computing as well to help differentiate the differences between that and supercomputing. And he did me a huge favor by bringing up the topic of space technologies. We got to talk about some space mining. I was all on board for that. I think that this was a great intro to some of the biggest areas of innovation. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please like the video, subscribe to the channel, and be sure to visit Simon's links down below for his company, Seven Investing, so that you can also stay informed on what new thing he's looking at next. And with that, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Well, I know we have limited time, Simon, and uh, really appreciate to have you on today. Uh, we're going to discuss a lot of topics should be a really exciting conversation, but I, I also, I just want to go ahead and kick it off. I know, um, you know, we only got you for about an hour or so. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about seven investing, uh, the company you founded? Yeah, sure thing, Josh. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad to be here. Um, you know, I have been a guy that's always been kind of uh, obsessed about innovation, about what the next big thing was going to be. And whether that was in uh, specialty chemicals, I was a sales rep in my 20s that went out and saw these new markets developing, uh, especially in agriculture and uh, personal care and oil and gas. And then kind of from there went into renewable energy, uh, saw solar solar power uh, project demonstrations that we did for a very large oil company and what that meant to them. And then I worked for seven years for The Motley Fool, ran a service that was very focused on innovation uh, that was happening all around the world. And then in March 2020, I got bit by the entrepreneur bug and we started Seven Investing to empower individuals to make better stock market decisions. So that's a 30 second overview of the last 20 years of my life. Yeah, I mean, and it's impressive, that's for sure. And I, I noticed on your your website, you have uh, quite the portfolio of being really early to 
uh, a lot of the big things, whether it was Bitcoin or, or uh, biotechnology, uh, like a very, very, very forward looking. I was really impressed, especially the consistency of that. You know, is there is there what are you looking for when you're looking into innovation? Like what are some of the key factors that have led you to the success that you've had? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is to, to get out of your comfort zone and talk to people who are smarter than you are. You know, I'm a big on conferences, big on technical conferences. And, you know, you just start through osmosis to, to learn about the things that these people with PhDs and postdocs and all of this, this knowledge are excited about out there. And I was always the guy with my laptop, just, you know, hammering away and then trying to make sense of everything on the flights home about what was really going on out there. And I was not bashful about interviewing them and following up later on. Uh, not only is that just good for building a professional network out there, but you, you start to kind of connect the dots after a while and say, okay, this is not just something you read about in a headline from the financial media. This is something that's got thousands, if not millions of people that are that are very sharp um, pushing for it. And, and, and that tends to come together over time. It's exciting to see. Yeah, but that, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's also the, basically one of the pillars for why I've created this podcast in general, or Monty and I have. So <laughs> talk to smart people like you. <laughs> so like, what, what would you say has been your, your most successful investment to date when it comes to innovation? What, what has stood out as the big winner for you? Oh, yeah, I guess in terms of the biggest uh, total return, you know, I, I was in, like I said, uh, solar and renewable energy before. And so right after this company uh, IPO'd and went public, I bought a whole boatload of shares of Solar City. I liked okay. the technology that, that they were doing. I liked the financial approach, you know, and it was really kind of neat, too, because uh, there was a chairman of the board of this company whose name was Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, he's familiar for most people listening to this podcast. Uh, you know, he then acquired all all of Solar City, and we rolled it right into Tesla shares. And from holding on to those for a decade, I mean, it doesn't surprise anybody where Tesla stock has gone for the last 10 years or so. That, that kind of funded Seven Investing and brought in the team that I have and the expansion that we've had. But a lot of it kind of came back from seeing something I was familiar with, putting a lot of money into it very early on. That's That's awesome, too. That so you were like way early to all of that caught all the Tesla ways. It's impressive. It's very impressive. I, I yeah. So when you're when you're buying up those growth companies though, I mean, especially in the early phases of that and riding all the waves that Tesla had, even uh, you know, go boarding bankruptcy several times. A lot of these companies are not profitable. There's a lot of risk in them. How are you managing that risk and you know not panic selling out when there is FOMO? Uh, in the markets there is and you know growth style investing as a whole is kind of uh, a victim of the hype cycle for anyone for anyone who's not yet familiar with that term we, we tend to get really excited about things that are new and shiny before they prove themselves right it's fool's gold or it's something that looks like it's going to be a lot more successful than it turns out to be and that's the nature of everything right 3d printing same same kind of thing you know nuclear fusion you know all, all these things that are really exciting and get people pumped up about it, even to some point, cryptocurrencies too, they get a lot of hype around them. People bid up the stock prices of, of a lot of these companies and then they just crater and they fall sometimes 50%, sometimes 70%, sometimes more than that. And so to answer your question of how do you sleep well at night, knowing that there's volatility out there, especially in down markets like 2022, is you just got to look at the execution of these companies to be like, all right, is this is this a company that's doing really, really well? and is riding this growth wave because they're better and more innovative than everybody else? 
Or is this something that was a flash in the pan that attracted some money and it really kind of fizzled out? Um, I would argue that a lot of cannabis companies kind of are the latter. They, they just attracted a whole lot of money and fell apart 3D printing the same thing. Whereas there are innovators out there. I mean, if you look at the trade desk and what Jeff Green has done with that company in digital advertising, he is three steps ahead of anyone else on the demand side platform for doing the best ROI possible for his ad agency companies. I mean, there's innovation that's true innovation that's like ahead of the curve of whatever else is catching up on. And then there's fake innovation. You kind of have to be able to separate the two. Yeah. As far as that goes, do you look for the guys that can, you know, land and expand the fastest? Do you look for the guys that can potentially become profitable the soonest? Or, you know, how do you separate the winners from the losers when it comes to a singular idea like that? We over um, overvalue revenue growth in the earliest phases because you almost assume that a company that's doing $10 million and grows to $50 million in a year, you, you quickly look at them and be like, oh my gosh, they, they quintupled their revenue. Look at how awesome this is. It's obviously got to have credibility out there. And even small cap companies, you know, that have got a couple of billion dollars um, in market cap or a couple hundred million dollars in revenue. Th those are early. That's very early and very easy. You kind of have these early adopters that are really excited about these things, right? You've got guys that are going to the MIT and the South by Southwest conferences and are real excited to, you know, go load up on Dogecoin when they're living in their, their grandma's basement. Um, it's a lot harder to get the mass market to actually get into these kinds of things. So you've got a combination of like, who's the right visionary leader that's going after a very large addressable market, but they're taking it off in bite-sized chunks that they just continue to grow and, and be profitable for. Again, Trade Dress is another example. I don't want to harp on that one too much, but it's a great example of a company that's growing even still today at 30% plus top line growth and capturing a 40% EBITDA margin. You got to look for combinations of stuff like that because not only are they going out and they're taking it, they're rewarding us as investors with it. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's very far and few between that seem to be able to connect those two dots, have that growth, but not at all costs, be able to manage your costs and margins and be expansive on that basis. It's funny you mentioned South by Southwest. I'm sure we were there at the same time one year, but you for the conference, me for the music, but I digress there. <laughs> Those are both amazing. And you got to do both if you're there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you saw in my background, I got a big old drum set back there somewhere. And that's what I was there for. <laughs> love it, love it. So when you're, so right now, when we're looking at probably the AI companies as like the the big hype that everyone's looking at. And you're as you're separating those winners and losers, or even just looking at where the market is currently evaluating these companies, even some big ones that have already proven to be winners, like NVIDIA, like what's your overall assessment uh, of this sector right now for the AI participants? It, it kind of depends. You know, a lot of people are saying it's overhyped. I'm not sure I agree with that. It might just be short-term overvalued. And again, if you're looking to jump in and out in a couple of months, maybe this isn't the best entry point. But on the other hand, it's really hard to displace NVIDIA at this point. I mean, they are so embedded with those cloud data centers that are just embracing AI. And it's it's almost damn near impossible for, for another chip maker to keep up with the performance per power efficiency of the GPUs that it has. I mean, that took 20 years to perfect their incrementally make it even better each and every year. Um, a lot of people are trying and failing. And then you've got the software components on top of that. And you got the relationships with customers on top of that. Um, I, I don't think, I, I wouldn't say that NVIDIA is a bad investment if you're thinking several years out. I think that even a trillion dollar market cap, this is a company that, that's going to continue 
to just build on its on its leads and its competitive advantages that it has and and, and be even stronger in the future than it is. Now, on the other hand, this competition, you know, there are going to be other winners out of things like this, but AI as a whole is definitely still early innings. Um, I don't think any growth style investor you talk to is, is going to think that this is just a flash in the pan that goes away in a couple of years. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely agree with all that. Um, I, I, I am, however, less certain on some of the more service-based AI companies like uh, C3 AI. Uh, do, what, what is your view of, of these more like service-based uh, companies right now? Yeah, they're pretty cool. I mean, C3.ai is uh, going after it for the enterprise, right? They've got a CEO and, and uh, founder of the company that has a long tenure in software, multi-decades. You know, he's been around and he's seen a lot of things. And he is really, um, let me get back to that in a minute. Let me digress for a moment and kind of tell the story of AI is that AI isn't just something that happened all of a sudden. ChatGPT made it super popular because they unleashed uh, or I'm sorry, Open, Open AI released ChatGPT, and then you had 100, 100 million users adopt it in just a matter of a couple of days. And so now everybody's talking about AI. Genie's out of the bottle. Pandora's box has been released. But before that, machine learning has got roots back to Jeff Hinton and University of Toronto and kind of ImageNet and all of these other things, where it was basically just statistically understanding lots and lots of data points. Right. So if you're looking at a picture after a while, you can start seeing a gradient between um, a, a very light shade and a dark shade. And all of a sudden you said, OK, that's 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 something that's got a, a sky background. And then after a while, you can start to, you know, this color gradients and other you know statistical means you can start saying, OK, that is a beak. I'm 99 percent possible that's a beak. And then after that, you kind of start piecing together beaks and you say, OK, I'm 99 percent positive that this is a bird. And then so AI in its earliest you know, earliest chapters of this was was recognizing images much more accurately and much more quickly than anybody else could do. And then, of course, in the recent years, we've now uh, evolved from image data and image gradients to words, where we could recognize letters and then text words and then combinations of those words. And now we have large language models that can understand what we're saying so that it can re immediately respond. It's the same idea. We're not recognizing birds anymore. We're recognizing questions that are being asked to a prompt like GPT did. And so the next evolution of AI is going to be video. You know, it's going to be contextual data of whatever you want to train it to do. Um, back to the C3.ai of, of the world, you know, where Tom Siebel kind of created companies before and has been around for three or four decades doing this. He understands there are biases that AI still is prone to. And that can be very problematic if you don't think through things very responsibly. And so he's cautioning the world, uh, if you've seen a lot of the things that he's saying, to, you know, yeah, the genie's out of the bottle now, but we still got to be smart about how we're doing this. Otherwise, we're just getting really, really excited about inaccurate or biased answers that are being trained based on how we train these, these AI algorithms. And so to your question about is C3 at AI a, a good company or not, it is a more conservative company than OpenAI is. Uh, they're going after Shell, who wants to fine-tune um, the information provided by its subject matter experts of the oil field to make more efficient projects and other, other things that it's, it's going to have more control over. But on the other hand, I, I don't know if that's good or bad or right or wrong or profitable or unprofitable. There's just different approaches to how we're going to go after AI in the next five, 10 years. Yeah. I, that's a that I, that's a really fair assessment. It's really really complicated, you know. Even just 
trying to figure out these biases or even, you know, when you ask the experts, I've listened to a lot of the AI experts and even for the understanding of how this, the, the in-between phases between putting, inserting a prompt and then how it's actually generated, it's like bouncing around through all these parameters and they can't even explain to you how it works. So yeah, yeah it's, it's extremely uh, complex. And I think you, you kind of summarized the problem with trying to come up with an evaluation of someone like C3 AI pretty well. Um, that's some of the difficulties, but I really appreciate your, your, your insight there. Uh, so, so the big thing that I've been thinking about right now, and you were talking about once you study a lot of different types of innovation, you start to connect the dots. And one of the things that I've been really interested in is the relationship that AI might share with other types of innovation, especially with things like biotechnology, which is actually my background. So I, I actually, I'm, I'm coming from a majoring in biotechnology and biochemistry before I found finance. So this is something that really is like excites me. It's one of the, you know, when I think about all these giant databases with all these genomes and the way that AI functions, it's a big problem solver, big puzzle solver. And so I, I'm, I'm curious if anything stood out to you and the relationship that these might develop in the future. Um, and maybe if quantum computing uh, will also kind of help play a role in that. I, I think that's very perceptive. And you said the right two words there when you said quantum computing, because now we're kind of looking at kind of two different um, scenarios, right? So, so there's some things that just are meant to be mass market adopted, right? Like we were just talking about, you know, uh, kids in their basement of their grandparents that are that are buying Dogecoin, you know, versus the mass market. There are certain things like cloud computing and AI that just are going to plug right in. With, with what Microsoft has already got built out with the enterprise, with what Google's already got built out with consumers. Like these are mass market ready technologies. Quantum computing is not, um, not even necessarily going to be mass market. It's really neat because there are certain problems out there that we cannot solve today. They are too hard. And even with AI, we just don't have the horsepower to even solve them. Uh, you mentioned biotechnology, you know, that's one of many things that just there's so many inputs and so many things you can monitor now that we can have the data, but we just can't even come up with the answer. It's too hard. It takes too long to process these things. You know, how can you simulate all of the vibrations of a molecule that's supposed to be going out there and either being a diagnostic or, a, you know, a, a therapeutic or something that's interacting with the rest of the body? or even look for all of the interactions between all of the molecules in your blood right now, or even all of the interactions between everything that's going in your brain as you're trying to detect or, or diagnose or uh, treat things like Alzheimer's. Um, on top of that, I mean, there's, there's even more complicated things out there. Nuclear fusion has been something that's been talked about right now, you know, but, but how do you design something like that? How can you proactively design weather patterns based on all of the pressures and temperatures and the gradients between them of every latitude and longitude on the earth. I mean, things like this, we, we're getting where we're getting pretty good at collecting data and we don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> now, quantum computing is, is so interesting because all of a sudden you've got a completely different way of actually doing this computing, you know, number crunching all this data that you're collecting in a way that maybe, and again, question mark on that, but maybe we can start taking millions, if not billions of inputs, resonating these qubits at the right frequencies and getting an output in seconds or minutes rather than thousands of years. 
you know, even GPUs and, CP and, and CPUs and the things that we've traditionally been doing, even for the biggest supercomputers in the world of these academic, you know, labs that have got the budget to do them, maybe if we just stop looking at zeros and ones and these mathematical calculations, we completely do these different types of computation, we can solve some of these really, really hard problems. And so all of this is my long-winded way of saying, I don't think quantum computing catches on like AI or cloud computing does where NVIDIA is going out and installing GPUs into these data centers that are being run by Microsoft and Google out there. I think it's more like a consulting project where you've got a bio, a, 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 you know, biotechnology company or a drug developer that's trying to interact uh, or look at the interactions of all of these things that they're doing as they're creating the, the appropriate molecules for these drugs that all of a sudden, can they pay uh, $50 million for a quantum computer that can solve these things where no one else could? Hell yeah, they can. And they're going to because they've got a really deep pockets to do it. And by the way, if Merck does that, Bristol's going to do the exact same thing. Every other Pfizer is going to do the exact same thing. It's going to become an arms race to keep up your competitor with your competitors because you don't want them to have an edge over what you do. Yeah, no, that makes a that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think the differentiation was something that I, I didn't have previously between what solutions a, a quantum will really be base tours because I was and I think a lot of people do this too because a lot of the articles I read kind of look at it as just like a, a level up of of AI that everyone will use rather than having a, be a, a specific solution uh, for more complex uh, problems so have you have you is there is there anything promising right now that stands out to you I know there there are some quantum computing companies out there with with big promises um what has your attention right now if any if any I'll I'll tell you Josh if you make it up to the MIT conferences no matter what year you go you're going to hear the exact same thing which is going to be quantum computing is 5 years away now, if you go the next year, they're going to tell you it's another five years. And if you go five years out, they're still going to tell you it's five years out. It's like this chicken and the egg problem. Um, you know, businesses that are eager to adopt this say, okay, $100,000 a qubit, 100 qubit machines, that's $10 million we got to spend for a quantum computer that we'll plug into. That's pretty darn expensive. Uh, if you're going to charge us that much money, you better be accurate, right? We're, we're going to... We're going to define this problem and do whatever you tell us to with the interface, but it's got to be right. Otherwise, we're wasting our money. And, and then nobody can do that right now, right? Nobody's got a perfectly useful, commercially useful, error-corrected quantum computer that is even economically feasible, much less certainly going to be accurate. Noise can't, you know, you're canceling out all the noise and all this, this other stuff. Um, but on the other hand, no one wants to build the computers, <laughs> you know, without having kind of customers lined up that are ready to do it. So... That's why we're always five years out. Um, you hear the killer apps all the time being talked about, and we're, we're kind of aware of them. But on the other hand, um, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I, I still think it's one of those. It's going to be cool one day, and everybody's eager to adopt it. But when that moment happens, is it going to be 2023 or 2033? I, I I couldn't tell you right now. Okay. Yeah. And I want to, you know, bring up a point you made, you know, as far as the accuracy goes, just talking to the few data scientists I know in my network, asking about quantum computing, the ultimate issue comes down to accuracy. You know, you can get to the result faster, but, you know, does it really make a difference if the result's wrong? So <laughs> that seems to be the number one challenge when comparing uh, 
quantum to high performance computing or or whatever they're using these days it, it's insane how hard it is to do right like like we think about it and you know even experts in the field struggle with even making these things because any interference in the system screws everything up right it could be um just a, a slight vibration from an earthquake that happened hundreds of thousands of miles away it could be radiation from clay in the bricks of the building that you're using i mean you know any kind of interference just throws off all the results and you say okay scrap it do it again you look at what mit's doing they're trying to build it from the ground up and even they are saying yeah okay we're doing some neat you know science projects but to make this economical um very very challenging yeah yeah that, that seems to be what it's going to come down to is it economically feasible so uh, when when you're looking at the broad different sectors whether it's the clean energy the ai or you know biotechnology etc what what is standing out to you the most right now because i know the hype is around ai but where what has you the most excited to learn about right now i really like that question um because you know we we tend to sometimes as investors we get so focused on earnings or like you know just just margins and these things that you know are just kind of incremental improvements of, of stuff that's that's not that exciting, right? Like, you know, what, what's the next dating app going to do? <laughs> you know, things like, you know, silly <laughs> things like this. But then you, you've got kind of the, the true innovations that are out there. It's like, what have we not tackled that we need to? Like, what is Elon Musk focusing his time on, on trying to solve out there? And then people like that. By the way, Josh, I love the, the picture in the background of Elon Musk that you've got. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. But, you know, one of those innovators, you, you look at guys like that, it's like, you know, there's a reason that he's the world's richest man because he goes out there and he is all in on kind of the hardest problems. Um, I do think that kind of with this new computing um, paradigm that, that we they are in now, I, I think that we can start solving some really hard problems like we mentioned earlier. And design is going to be like the new most important thing for a lot of these companies. How, how do you frame a quantum computer to solve the problems you're looking to solve. Uh, if you're in semiconductors, how do you design a more efficient chip that might compete with NVIDIA? If you're in the power industry, energy industry, um, how do you design a smart grid that's more efficient? You know, things like this, really, really tough problems, but like now all of a sudden we've got ways to start designing things that would be better solutions that are completely disruptive to the just good enough incremental improvements we've had and like for those that follow clay christensen and the innovators dilemma i mean this is disruptive you can now think make things that are not just two or three times better but a thousand times better than where we were before but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of thought uh, healthcare healthcare could use a lot of help with design right now and then the other piece that you know we haven't really explored at all which is just kind of a a pretty good sized market today that, that could be a 20x increase in the next decade is the space economy. Um, you know, satellites today are, are looking at things and taking images of things and doing work for the Defense Department. And they're, you know, uh, beaming down telecom stuff, you know, satellite internet is, is kind of just in its earliest stages. But I mean, that's a $400 billion market that's just getting started right now. And, you know, you see what Starlink is doing and what SpaceX is doing and what companies like Rocket Lab are doing. It's 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 enabling a completely different um, creativity for smart entrepreneurs to start harnessing. 
And if, and if you can figure that out and, you know, do that in a way that we haven't been able to before at all, that's pretty exciting. And I think that's going to open a whole lot of doors. Uh, I think space economy is something I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I mean, that is, there's so much that goes into that as well. I, I've done some digging, especially during uh, COVID, there were all these SPACs that were space related. Now they varied from the actual technical side to sort of spectacles to go visit space. But uh, there's also so many different components that play into that. So if you're an investor, are you usually looking to invest? And I, I want to I want to dive deeper into the space idea, but but just in general, when you're looking at that space component, are you looking to invest in the company that's actually trying to, you know, like Starlink, that's trying to send these satellites out there, among other tasks? Or are you looking also at the peripherals? Whereas like the company that's creating the steel for them or the copper or um, that's creating the, uh, I'm drawing a blank, but the other, the other components necessary for them to create their product or their service. Yeah. Good question. Also with that one, I mean, like there's kind of both, right? It depends on what type of investor you are. Do you want to go after the risky, sexiest part of the industry that could be <laughs> worth a hundred times your money? Or do you want to play it a little bit safer with companies that are doing the picks and shovels, but they're going to have more dependable revenue streams. Um, we can look at kind of the, um, the, the chip industry as an example of this, right? You've got the designers of chips, like the NVIDIAs, the, uh, the AMDs of the world, and then you've got the manufacturers of the chips, like the Taiwan semiconductors of the world. And then you've got the people that are using the chips, like Microsoft putting them into data centers. Um, and then you've got the software companies like OpenAI that are tapping into those. There's different um, margin profiles for each one of those parts of this of this industry. And just like space economy is going to similarly going to be, okay, what do you want to get into space to do in the first place? Um, how are you building your satellite? Are you doing it yourself? Are you hiring someone else to do it? How are you getting into outer space? And, you know, are, are they, are, are you hitching a ride with Elon's massive rockets or you got your own dedicated launch out there? And then who's operating them? you know, once they're up there, you know, space as a service kind of stuff. But it's kind of the same thing. I mean, whether you look at cloud computing or chip industry or whatever, you you have some new infrastructure that has to be in place for it to happen. You've got providers of the picks and shovels that are serving that infrastructure. You've got the companies that are embracing that to do something cool. And you've got the kind of the operations to make sure satellites aren't colliding into each other and various other things. Uh, each one of those has got winners that will emerge and and will consolidate power in doing whatever they're doing really, really, really well. That I that's an interesting idea that a company would provide a service that would prevent satellites from bumping into one another because I've been seeing some headlines. I haven't really followed that there's any litigation in the pipeline, but some governments being concerned about in the future there being so many satellites by different foreign companies as well as us. But the idea that a, a company would, would do you think a company will fill that role or do you think there's still a lot of uh, political uh, uh, risk that's going to be involved with different litigations that are going to have to come around to, to just, I mean, unpack <laughs> the new problems that we'll have with the, with the development in the space? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the public versus private, you know, uh, expansion to space is is a is a tough line. You know, you want to go out and do something really cool and innovative, but on the other hand, every country's got its own national interests. 
you know, at heart, you know, are you working for the United States? Are you working for Russia? You know, are you working for China? Are you, you know, whoever it is, I mean, like, it's, it's almost like we're drawing these battle lines on the ground of earth, but then we're also drawing these battle lines in space. Um, you, you've seen kind of hopefully some of those hypersonic missile programs the U.S. is, is doing to track and then deploy things to to either launch or shoot down missiles that are going several times the speed of sound out there right now. Uh, that That's not just something that, you know, has, hasn't happened. It's a result of, of a response to uh, these programs that yeah. that are of concern, maybe of, of China and even with Russia and South Africa recently. And we've so, heard, I mean, yeah, we've we've even heard. Sorry, interrupt, but we've even heard uh, Elon recently talk about that at a at a conference just a few days ago uh, about, hey, I, I'm providing Starlink for free and and not getting compensated where other companies who are showing support Ukraine are being compensated. And and I have no way to prevent Russia from deciding they want to take Starlink out with one of these supersonic missiles and just take the whole thing offline. It's $10 billion at risk, uh, as well as paying for it out of pocket. And, and, and yeah, so yeah, it's, it's a, there's a lot of risk in that, especially if there is going to be some sort of conflict in the future. That, and that's, that's a, another huge risk for the space that makes me worried. It doesn't, it doesn't hinder my excitement, but it does make me worried. There are some things that, that every country out there does seem to have an, an, an interest in, though. You know, national interests and sovereign interests aside, I mean, like, we don't want to blow up satellites normally. We don't want to waste money on things that collide with each other. We don't want to do things that are really harmful for the environment. Generally, you know, there, there's kind of like going to be this, we, we all kind of nod and say, okay, there's some things we need to monitor space. We need to make sure that people go into space are safe. We may just need to make sure that debris gets cleaned up. I mean, stuff like that, the the data and the, um, you know, the imagery and, you know, the defense stuff, that's one side, but there's also kind of this basic level of like, we've got to have this and we can work with a whole bunch of different governments to to have that provided. Yeah. Hopefully all working towards that goal. Kind of like the International Space Station, like we'll set set our differences aside in the name of science, which I always love to see for sure. Do you, do you uh, have any, this might be uh, a more uh, fantasy question, but does the idea of mining space uh, interest you at all? I've heard some people theorize on it, uh, crunching the numbers. It doesn't look like it's gonna really be. A, it could. I mean, there's a there's a trade off, right? If you could go far enough, there's some pretty big rocks that look interesting. But I mean, uh, what, what what just what's your opinion on that? It, I mean, that's, that's the, mining comets and meteorites, right? No, yeah. that's the right that's the right way to put it. Is there's rocks that look interesting out there, right? Like you look yeah. you look across the periodic table, and we call some of them rare earth metals. But like, really, <laughs> we just need to call them rare metals, right? Like, yeah, if you right. get some of those from at, from outer space or asteroids, and you've got a way to reliably do it, and by the way, that lessens your indi- your your dependence on kind of maybe some governments you don't want to work with on some of that stuff. Um, yeah. That, that's pretty interesting. Gallium and germanium are coming from um, China right now in, in large quantities. And a lot of those are necessary for developing the, uh, the kind of the, ne- the, the next wave of a lot of, um, of semiconductors that are much more efficient, right? Uh, do, do we want that? You know, do, do, if we don't have the supplies under, under the ground from where we can mine them from, can you get things from things like that from, from elsewhere? I mean, stuff like that is on the minds of anybody who's trying to scale up. Um, 
supply chains to serve things like electric vehicles or the new wave of energy out there. Yeah, no, that's a really, especially with renewable rocket fuel and stuff like that and those advancements, then that conversation becomes more and more probable. Um, and I didn't even think about the limitation. I didn't even think about the separation because when you're look, thinking about something like that, you have to think about what's the motivator to do that. And But the separation from dependence on other countries is a pretty big motivator because I, I was originally thinking of things like you can get gold or other precious metals that are just hold a lot of value uh, that, you know, to sell. I was thinking more of like a, a like a gold mining company. And I'm not saying this is realistic, but like a gold mining company say we're going to go mine gold at outer space, which I guess would invite a whole nother conversation of what is the value of these things if they're they're limited here on Earth, but pretty much unlimited, you know, surrounding the planet. You know, I that's a lot. Have you ever thought, have you thought about that problem or talked to anyone that's kind of thought about that problem on a longer time frame of maybe 50 years or a hundred years? Is that too is that too far out there? Is that too sci-fi at the moment to really enter it's the, not. Yeah. No, it's not. I mean, like the, the classic quote is, you know, we, we tend to overestimate our progress in the short term. Things don't happen as quickly as we want them to in a year or two. But then we underestimate our progress in the long term that we actually if you look 10 years back from where we were today and you look at all the progress we made since 2013, it's amazing. Right? Like, look at AI, like like hardly anybody was really talking about machine learning inference in 2013. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere now. Right. Um and it's going to be amazing what 2033 is going to be too. You know, Josh, what are you and me and Monty going to talk about in 2020, 2033? And we look back on this podcast and be like, man, we were saying that asteroid mining was crazy at the time and quantum computing was so far, it was five years out of the time. And it's going to, be, I mean, when you have people like, um, you know, the Elon Musk of the world, they're thinking in terms of 10X in order of magnitude improvements and you see what they accomplish. Um, suddenly these things that seem, untackable or impossible are, are not impossible. And then you build upon this next, you know, order of magnitude jump that you make to do something even cooler that's farther out. It's going to be pretty exciting. We'll probably have a colony on Mars, if not with people inhabiting it, but there's going to be something on Mars by 2033. Yeah, that's, I don't know if I'll go to Mars because that sounds terrifying, <laughs> but it's definitely cool to think about. It's definitely cool to think about. So, and so, I want to backtrack a little bit too, um, although that was fun, uh, a really fun conversation. I love, I love thinking about that, uh, the space exploration. Um, but when when we're trying to solve those problems to get to that step, do you think that in the future, or maybe even in the near future, that most discoveries won't be from people, but rather like AI or quantum computing actually solving these major problems? Is our job just going to be to just ask the right question and then let it do all the experiments basically is that what is that was that kind of what the future is looking like and and what happened well i gotta I, i'll add this too what happens when you throw the market the stock market at something like quantum computing it's also something i've thought about like does it master that pretty much overnight on on you know like the best trading philosophies and stuff and then you know, I'm a trader, so am I just out of work? <laughs> we we <laughs> might all be out of work, right? Yeah, there's yeah, no, there's yeah. no, the most interesting thing of all of AI is it does not have the same biases that human beings do. You yeah. think about how we tackle problems. We build organizations. We build corporations. We get shareholder funding, you know, from publicly traded stocks to go out there and invest in projects. We have decisions made by managers who represent the data that's interpreted by analysts to 
people that make decisions at the top, you you go forward with, with, with solving those things. It's kind of like this interesting framework we have of solving problems. AI has none of that. AI looks at just data and just says what it thinks based on all the data you fed it. It's going to see things that you never saw before. It's like looking at a telescope and like in the telescope, you can see planets, you can see stars. Now imagine you got a telescope that can see gravity, that can see black holes, you can see all this, you know, radiation, things like that the human eye could never see. And so now your interpretation of the universe you can see through a telescope is completely different. Same exact thing with AI. It's going to have completely different outcomes because it's going to see problems completely different than how we've tried to solve them in the past. What does that mean for any industry or any of our jobs or even jobs in general? We don't know yet. Yeah, that is. So it sounds like a tool in the toolbox and not necessarily the uh, ultimate replacement. The toolbox has completely changed. You're not using hammers anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going that from is... a hammer to a drill. Right. Yeah. Do you think that the, do you see massive job replacement from the stage that AI has achieved so far? That And it's just like, we're just slow to the adaption and it will take some time to play out, but it's kind of already here or at that point. Or do you think we need a little bit more development and capabilities with something like ChatGPT4? I'm uh, sorry, Josh, could you rephrase the question for me? I didn't understand. You, is oh, it going to so replace jobs, you thinking? Well, like, yeah, well, I, I think in the future it will replace jobs, but with the capabilities that AI has right now, do you think it has the potential to replace a good a good fraction of the amount of jobs that are out? We've seen some of that in some select areas, kind of, but do you think that that's just because the adoption's slow, or do you think, like, do you think, like, like politicians and stuff, do you think, I mean, they haven't made any ma major changes, but we've seen some forward-looking people like Andrew Yang come out and say, hey, we need universal basic income because of these innovations. Is that something that you think we're slow to realize the amount of job displacement this is going to cause right now? Or do you think it's still going to take a little bit of time and improvement from an AI to, to come around and do that? I mean, governments better better get it together quick. Like the role of government has never been more important of protecting the interests of, of any country, right? And whether that's jobs, whether that's macroeconomy, whether that's pandemics that break out. I mean, like, you know, the response from government has to be faster because it kind of used to be you kind of regulate, you know, large corporations. You know, we now had tech companies and we kind of had these, these bumpers that we put them in. And like, you, you don't put bumpers in place for AI. This is why Elon is so worried about AI. And how it could like threaten humanity as a whole, right? I mean, the, the guys that, that get exposed to this stuff are, are kind of terrified of it. And governments are always 10 steps behind yeah. the technologists that are getting it out there. I, there is no politician in Washington, D.C. that is well-versed enough as any of the engineers, the prompt engineers that are working, you know, with open AI. And, and you, you talk to, you know, these guys out there, the Ray Kurzweil's of the world, the Ben Gertzel's of the world, uh, the singularity kind of guys of the world. And, you know, these are the ones that are saying, hey, you know, the singularity is coming. You're not going to slow this down. Good luck controlling it. If, if, if you want to, if you want to have some kind of control, you, you better get proactively far ahead of this. And you're going to have to cooperate with every government on the world to do it. And by the way, good luck with that. Um, but they're also saying that, like, it's it's not a um, a bug, but a feature of AI to replace jobs. I saw Ben Gertzel when they introduced Sophia at South by Southwest years ago. Hanson Robotics, you know, Sophia is this autonomous robot that looked at us and interacted with us in the audience. 
by the way, this is like seven or eight years ago. You can imagine how far it's come since then. But, you know, we're all in the room kind of feeling like, wow, we are inferior to this robot that now can remember everything and be much more efficient than anyone in this room at any job that Sophia does. How do, how do we adopt to that? You know, we don't know. Government has to have some some stay in this, but even the government doesn't know what to do about AI. Um, apologies that this isn't the rosy bullish picture on the technology, but I, I think that it is important that uh, we start recognizing these things and the biases that AI has and that we're not as in control of this technology as maybe we think that we are. I I, I still see it as very bullish. Uh, I, that might be a, a more fringe opinion, but I, I think, uh, hey, if, if this wants to do most of the work and I can enjoy some more of my free time, I am. I, I'm down for that. I think most people are down for that. Now, with that free time, I'll probably just do more work. But I think a lot of people will enjoy, you know, like not having to be a a a slave to the corporation to a job they don't like, and and having an AI do it, and then something like universal basic income uh, stepping in. Because I don't see I don't see any other solution. And we've seen, you know, historically, someone like Rome where. This is getting a little off topic on a tangent, but someone like Rome, where they they took a bunch of slaves and displaced most of their workforce because slaves are cheap and free, and then collapsed because of it due to revolt of the population. So I see it as that type of existential problem where people find meaning in their jobs, and they're going to need to find meaning in something else if AI is going to take all that job, all those jobs. Yeah. So and, yeah. and there's still be there was still gonna be plenty of good jobs that you know it's not like this yeah. is gonna just replace the entire workforce. I mean, if you want to write your check right now, if you want to put however many zeros you want to on your employer's check, you go into one of two fields right now. Uh, one, you go into prompt engineer. Okay, yeah, I, I apologies, Josh. I have one minute, but I'll wrap this up okay. hopefully quick here. Is um uh, two two fields you can write your own check in. The first is prompt engineering for AI, generative AI. You know, if you if you can train the AI and these large language models and these foundations we've had that are interpreting basic things like questions being asked and fine tune that to a company's proprietary data, whether it's energy for Shell oil company or whether it's any company out there that's got important data that you, you've become the expert on for decades. That's the first most important thing. Direct the AI to give you the answers that are accurate. And then the second thing is work as a fabrication um, facility. Uh, uh, work, for, work as a master technician in a fab because the pace of new uh, chip manufacturing out there in the world is is going exponential right now, right? 30, 40 billion dollars a year, Taiwan Semiconductor is spending on new fabs. Intel, fully committed to building new foundries. You know, Samsung trying to keep up. New companies like Global Foundries, whoever it is, like there is an arms race to have high, you know, cutting edge chips, high performance computing chips. And uh, if you are really good at building the facilities that can make those, you write your own check right now. That's awesome. Well, it, it was great having you on, Simon. Uh, do you kind of want to tell where can where can people find you and learn more about Seven Investing and, and, and get better connected with the type of content you put out? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, yeah. You know, we are seveninvesting.com is our website. We make a we make stock recommendations each and every month. Uh, we've talked about a whole lot of innovative stuff here in this conversation, but we also have you know stable dividend paying companies, value companies. We we put seven recommendations out each and every month. And then we, we want to encourage individual investors like you and I to make our own decisions because investing is a personal thing. We, we don't all do this the same way. We kind of want to put a buffet of options out there that we've done a lot of research in and that let you make your own decisions off of it. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much, Simon. I hope I hope we can have you on in the future and talk some more, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to be respectful of your time. And thanks again for coming on. It was a really great time. I had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Thanks very much, Josh. Thanks, Monty. Absolutely. It was great talking, Simon. Thank you.